Hello, everybody, and welcome back after far too long a pause to the first episode of season five of Bad Gays, a podcast about evil and complicated queer people in history. I'm Ben Miller, a writer, researcher, and member of the board of the Schwulis Museum in Berlin. And my name's Hugh Lemmy. I'm a writer and author. And there's been a reason why we've been away from you for so long, which is that we have spent the past year uh, in various forms of lockdown writing a book. The book is called Bad Gays, A Homosexual History, and it has many stories of evil and complicated queer folks in it. About half of them have already been profiled on the show, but we have more room to go into more detail. And about half of them are brand new. Uh, Yes, we finally did Mishima. You can stop adding us. We did it, if you're happy. (laughs) You don't need to ask us about it anymore. Um, We're very proud of it, and uh, we hope that you will all pre-order it and buy it. And uh, the good news is that there's uh, actually right now a sale on it, Verso, everything's 40% off. Uh, so if you would like to buy the book, you can go to badgazepod.com slash book. Yeah, and that's going to be out in June next year, just in time for, for Pride. So what a be- better way to show your pride. Exactly. Pride, shame. There was actually a group <laughs> in San Francisco called Gay Shame. Um, and we're trying to join their legacy. Um, and it also makes a great belated uh, holiday solstice etc present because you get the pre-order now and then it's like a second present comes when the actual book shows up in june um so do be on the lookout for that once again it's badgazepod.com slash book but we are not just here to sell you books we are here to give you for free an episode of our podcast about a evil and complicated queer person whose life story tells us something about how queerness itself came to be And Hugh is going to lead us today through the story of our first victim of this season, who is... Well, let's get to that. Um, So it's said that today's subject was fond of making the following toast when celebrating with his friends. He'd hold his glass aloft and declare, champagne for my real friends, real pain for my sham friends. And it's a (laughs) fitting start. It's It's a good line, right? And it's a fitting start for today's episode because um, drinking, friendship and and pain were amongst his greatest loves. Uh, His others were probably gambling and painting. For today's subject is the artist, bohemian and bon viveur Francis Bacon. I'm sure many of our listeners, whether whether they're interested in the arts or not, will be familiar with Bacon's work, or at least would recognise his idiosyncratic style if they saw it. These sweeps of fleshy paint across these black fields of colour, portraying contorted, mangled bodies, racks of hanging meat, and this iconic screaming mouth. But Bacon's almost as famous for the way he lived his life, at full tilt with his raucous partying, his brutal barbed tongue, and his love of boozing. He's become an emblem of London's bohemian Soho scene in the post-war period. But what links his work and his life, the recurrent theme of Bacon as a cultural figure, is his obsession with violence, something that he knew intimately. It seems like it's starting to become a bit of a theme on bad gays, so you won't be surprised when I tell you that Francis Bacon, like Oscar Wilde and Roger Casement, who also shook up English society, was Anglo-Irish. He was born in Dublin in 1909, the son of a racehorse trainer and breeder, Edward Bacon, and his wife, Christina, who was herself the heiress to a small steel manufacturing company in England. He came from a military and colonialist family, and he was named for his distant relative, the scientist, politician, and philosopher, and fellow bad gay, probably, the Elizabethan Francis Bacon. A portrait of his family will also be a familiar type recognisable to regular listeners. Eddie Bacon was an Englishman in the imperial mould. 
educated at the public school Wellington. He fought in a Boer War before marrying and moving to Ireland to concentrate on his real passion, horse breeding and training. The description that Bacon's biographer, Michael Pepiat, gives of Eddie Bacon bears a strong similarity to descriptions of Bosey's father, John Douglas, the Marcus of Queensbury, from the episode on Bosey. He believed in martial values of strict timekeeping and self-discipline. He prioritised the sporting life. And, of course, he had a vicious and violent temper. It's almost like uh, raising your child with violent martial discipline ends up turning them into some sort of louche, artsy, uh, you know, is he, you know, kind of uh, kind of person. Well, you either have two options, really. You've got to stick with it and become the same sort of figure as your father or rebel. Totally, I think. And of course, unlike the, as, as basically English, as English people living in Ireland, uh, unlike the majority of the Irish population who lived around them, they, they weren't Catholic. And later, Bacon would say, I was raised a rabid Protestant with no beliefs, of course. It's a very fitting description of the Anglican Church. Rabid Protestants believe nothing. Well, some of them do. Um, Anglicans don't tend to believe much except in the Queen. So Eddie's children were to be seen and not heard. And preferably rarely seen. So after moving back and forth between England and Ireland, the Bacons moved to a large country house with attached stables in Straffan, County Kildare. And his parents weren't really much concerned with Francis's formal education. He never really managed to stay very, anywhere for very long or to make much of an impression. His parents uh, at home were, were pretty content so long as he didn't get in their hair. But as he became a teenager, it was already clear that Francis was a disappointment. His father wished his son would follow in his model as a countryman, uh, but Francis was terribly asthmatic. But nonetheless, Eddie would force his son to join them hunting. Francis would later recall seeing his step-grandfather mutilating cats and throwing them to the hounds. These hunts would trigger Francis's asthma, and he'd be laid up in bed for days after, wheezing and choking. He would later tell a friend, Surely there's nothing worse than the dusty saddle lying in the hall. Eddie would watch in horror as Francis turned up to fancy dress parties in the 1920s as a flapper. He would hear the rumours about his experimentations with other boys at the schools that he was increasingly being forced out of. And he would see with his own eyes Francis's soft face and feminine mannerisms. And he was furious. And so he decided in this classic English imperial manner to force Francis to conform through violence. Francis would later tell how his father would have the teenage boy at this age, maybe the 12 or 13, uh, dragged out to the stables and horsewhipped by his groomsmen. A truly barbaric piece of behaviour that, that clearly scarred him. Yet this attempt to brutalise his child into heterosexuality would backfire. Francis was already aware that he was, in his own words, completely homosexual. And indeed, he had already had sexual relations with a number of the very groomsmen in whom, whose stables he was being whipped. What's more, Francis himself, although despising his father, was sexually attracted to him. Again, in his own words, he said, I fell sexually in love with him. So we begin to see de developing in Francis a, a very complex eroticization of violence, and a, specifically a violence that he was the victim of, but to which he sort of began to develop into basically a form of pleasure for himself. And which is also something that we probably can see uh, later on in the work. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it, it, violence and being a victim of violence is his life's work in, in, a, in a way. And, um, and in one of the final interviews before he died, Francis was, was asked about this, um, the frequent description of his work as violent. 
Um, but before the interviewer could even sort of finish his question, Bacon snapped back, my painting is not violent. It is life that is violent. I've endured physical violence. I've even had my teeth broken. Sexuality, human emotion, everyday life, personal humiliation. Violence is part of human nature. This is true, of course, but few who experience the violence of human nature can or, or desire to eroticize it, aestheticize it, and to make it a point of meditation for one's life. But for Francis, this process started him when he was a child, lonely and rejected, and as we'll see, will become his life story. Uh, at 16, having caught him wearing his mother's lingerie, Francis's father expelled him from the family home. There's a story here, of course, of the abuse that um, Francis suffered, which no child should have to endure. But I think it also tells something of Francis that not only did he endure it, but also how kind of queerness was and is so often conflated with weakness, which isn't true because because he 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 persevered through it um and it's ironic that that through the way that his father treated him francis actually did demonstrate all the qualities of perseverance and resilience of adaptability and physical bravery that his father desired of him but of course not in the social form that his father needed to see so what emerged from these early years was was a very queer kind of toughness um, and Bacon would be known throughout his life for his absolutely acid tongue, a very cruel tongue, very funny, uh, and indeed often for his personal cruelty and his his defensiveness. But this was also counted with a streak of a very brave openness to vulnerability and, of course, a personal and material generosity that, that would be the grounding of his life as a bohemian figure. Um, These are often strategies, I think, that that people develop all of the all of the the personality traits that you just listed um, are strategies that people develop that come out of the experience of abuse and uh, persecution in the closet. Yeah, and and these are aspects of, of Francis's life that are yeah that are born of rejection and humiliation, but I think that are themselves a, a very recognizable queer way of living. And his his biographer um, or one of his biographers, Daniel Farson. Puts it quite nicely. He said, though he might have appeared effeminate as a youth, this was the effeminacy of leather. It's also worth pointing out that there was a ray of light in this extremely dark and loveless world, which was his nanny, Jessie Lightfoot. And Jessie would be the first of a number of surrogate parent figures for, figures for Francis, uh, a source of love and comfort and physical nourishment as his cook. And uh, she'll appear in his story later. But first we find Francis at his crossroads in a very familiar British queer story. He's 16. He's been ejected from the family home by his father, um, although he is still receiving a little money from his mother on the sly. <clears throat> and he arrives in London as a young gay man, uh, excited by the opportunities and living off his, off his wits. And he discovers, much to his surprise, following his family's relentless cruelty to him, that he's actually um, a very pretty, desirable young man and men want him. And so for a while, he survives through petty crime. And he actually describes this astonishing story of meeting this older, wealthy man on Dover Street in London who takes him home. As the man uses a bathroom, Francis rifles through his pockets for cash. And the man sees him in the bathroom mirror and comes back into the room. And according to Francis, the man said, what are you doing, Francis? And I said, well, you know what I'm doing. Then he said, you don't have to do that. Just ask. And he took me down to a bank and drew out £100, which was a very large sum then, and he gave it to me. It was a marvellous way to behave, and I've never forgotten it. Yeah, this is actually a, a generosity that Francis would go on to emulate 
And also, according to my calculations, bacon would have been 16 or 17. So that would have been 1926. And 100 pounds then is worth about six and a half thousand pounds today. Not bad. <clears throat> yeah, very generous. Yeah. But um, Francis didn't really leap at the sort of sexual and creative opportunities that London offered him. He held down a few odd jobs, but rarely for very long. And his sex life was hampered by a shyness that you might sort of expect from a country boy who'd been so long humiliated. Um, this isn't the sort of small town boy of Bronsky beat story. But his father, meanwhile, wasn't over trying to make a man, like a, a real man, so to speak, out of Francis. And he happened to know a very upstanding and proper gentleman in London, um, an archaeologist named Cecil Harcourt Smith. So Cecil was everything that Eddie wished Francis would emulate. He was a successful career man. Uh, he had recently retired as the director of the Victorian Albert Museum, the V&A. Um, he'd received honours from the king. He was married with children. He was widely admired for his sort of embodiment of these masculine Edwardian values. And he was about to visit uh, Europe. So Eddie surmised he was the perfect man to take Francis under his wing and show him some sort of higher culture of the continent and teach him a little of what it means to be a man. In terms of catastrophic heterosexual misreadings of a situation, this was a straight male fuck-up of historical proportions, because Harcourt Smith was certainly a very impressive example of masculine virility, but in the words of Francis, he would fuck absolutely anything. <laughs> uh, not, not only that, but the city that Harcourt Smith decided to take Francis to was Berlin, and this was the mid-1920s, at the very height of the Weimar Republic. So... This city I'd love, like, love to take my friend to Weimar Berlin in 1927 to make yeah. him straight. Straight him out, yeah. <clears throat> Can our new podcast be catastrophic heterosexual misunderstandings of <laughs> catastrophic proportions or whatever that was? <laughs> yeah, he, um, I mean, yeah, you, you know, I'm sure listeners will know what, what Berlin was like at the time. It was sort of this explosion of culture of nightlife, drugs, sex, Every delicious perversity you might want to indulge in was there. And um, Cecil wanted to taste them all. And so Francis would be the, the first subject of his taste for sexual violence, but he soon moved on. Francis, meanwhile, was free to discover the sexual liberty of Weimar Berlin. And also his English pounds went very far in an economy that was suffering from hyperinflation. Quote, you had this feeling that sexually you could get absolutely anything you wanted, he recalled later. Uh, I felt, well, now I can just drift and follow my instincts. So he'd visit, visit sort of art galleries during the day and the cinema and then queer clubs at night before sort of drunkenly slinking back to his ducal suite in the magnificent uh, Hotel, Hotel Adlon uh, that overlooks Brandenburg Gate. The Hotel Adlon, by the way, rebuilt in the same location after the wall fell and famously the hotel that Michael Jackson dangled the baby out of. In the mid nineties. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. There was also interest. I read the Wikipedia article for this hotel, and the the original owner was um, uh, after the end of the First World War, when the Weimar Republic was declared, he he refused to sort of admit that the monarchy had fallen. He still had a statue of the king and stuff. And traditionally, in the, under the Brandenburg Gates, the central pillar was reserved for the monarchy. And he sort of refused, sort of mentally, to acknowledge that this car, this 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 route was now open to all traffic. So he was hit by a car walking across it because he thought it was empty because the only the king can drive through there. And then two years later, did exactly the same thing, which is where he died after being hit by a car. Anyway, 
Yeah, it's, it's a it's a it's a one of the most luxurious hotels in the world at the time. Um, guests were sort of like Josephine Baker, FDR, Marlene Dietrich, Charlie Chaplin, and and Francis Bacon as a, as a teenager boy. And Bacon tells this very wonderful anecdote of sort of reaching through these hangings that are draped around their four poster bed to grab the breakfast trolley. Uh, and on each corner of the breakfast trolley, these sort of silver swans' necks and heads, and he sort of languishly sort of pulls through the trolley through the curtains. Um, and so he just spent his time there just imbibing this culture, including um, probably is where he first saw Eisenstein's Battleship Potemkin, which had just been released and would go on to be one of the most important influences to his later work. But at this time, he was just a sort of young gay boy drifting around Europe. Um, and Harcourt Smith soon sort of tired of fucking him. And so he moved um, moved on uh, uh, eventually to Paris. <clears throat> which he absolutely fell in love with. And after London, it would sort of be the city that was his, the love of his life. Uh, while he was there, he learned French. And actually, if you're interested, there's nothing better than going on YouTube and watching these sort of videos that he did with as when he was much older, where he sort of conducts interviews in this very marvelously swishy French with this English accent. It's really great. A, a sort of model of fagginess, artistic fagginess. He's brilliant. And he's got his sort of fag on the go and he's like getting drunk, like increasingly drunk as it goes on. Anyway, he's so he's 17 at this point. He's in Paris. He's visiting all these art galleries. And it's there that he also first saw Poussin's um, The Massacre of the Innocents, which is a painting which also has this open mouth, desperate scream like Battleship Potemkin. And it's funny actually to think at this time of both Francis Bacon and his contemporary bad gay, uh, Anthony Blunt, who was only two years older than him, uh, and these sort of two faggy teenagers in Paris who were sort of staring in awe at these Poussin paintings. And then Blunt, obviously, later would go on to be sort of the world authority on Poussin, uh, just to think what sort of different lives like they led, what different directions they went in. And Blunt obviously went on to Cambridge and quickly make a name for himself in the art world. But, but Bacon's sort of rise took a bit longer. Uh, it wasn't really a rise. It kind of actually happened as an explosion. So in Paris, he'd seen these Picassos and there'd been this moment of artistic intellectual clarity for him. He sort of wanted to become a a painter. And so back in London, he began painting. And in 1933, he finished his first major work, The Crucifixion. Uh, At this point, he was only 24, but the painting made quite a splash and he got his first first solo show. But the reviews were really disappointing and he felt very rejected. And so he decided instead to uh, take up a career as an interior designer and just do some painting on the side. Uh, he was actually quite good interior designer. I mean, at least to my taste, I like his stuff. He was really influenced by this groundbreaking work of this architect and designer called Elaine Gray. And he set up this small design studio and exhibition room in South Kensington, where he produced sort of knockoff greys. These modernist, Bauhaus-influenced, steel and glass furniture, very tasteful, modernist rugs. And later in his life, he came quite embarrassed, or at least quite reticent about sort of talking about this period, because it was so tasteful, I guess. Which I think is quite interesting because it sort of shows the degree to which his image as a sort of louche bohemian artist who had suffered through hard times was, to an extent, a very self-conscious construct later on. And these paintings themselves, unusually focused on interiors, um, they have these sort of twisted fleshy forms that are often against these sort of blank interiors. And often the only other thing in them are sort of doors or chairs or light bulbs or beds. Yeah, the, the homosexual urge to pursue interior design through tasteful Bauhaus knockoffs, right? But I actually do think it's, <laughs> it's, it's interesting because there is an extent to which I think especially, even now and especially at that time, um, people's 
people, once they have become kind of successful artists or public figures, um, their narratives of struggle and hardship and abuse and violence um, have to either be invalidated in public or define them in public, you know, Mm. and you know, you, you can't, you can't have actually gone through what he went through and then also have it known that you were, you know, making a decent living, making knockoff Bauhaus furniture or hanging out at the, this really fancy hotel in Berlin with all these people, because it would be, it would have, it, it could be sort of taken up and used as an invalidation of, or as a, as a kind of response to the story that you're telling. Um, yeah. I mean, I think there's two different things there, though. I think the sort of the bohemian or the, the, the sort of life in the hotel, he's not so embarrassed about it. It's more that he, his work sort of had this earlier phase that he's not so, and, and the, that, that sort of manifested in, yeah, this interior design. Um, but that he, no, he definitely is. First of all, he definitely does want to sort of tell a bit of a, a constructed or confected story later about his life. But, but also really importantly, like control and is, big part of it and and he's known throughout his career for destroying paintings that he's always destroying his own work and actually from this entire period these are sort of his last years there's very very few paintings for for about uh, 15 or 10 or 15 years there's like maybe one a year um and throughout the the sort of 30s into the second world war like actually nothing survives from from some of those years so yeah, he, he would sort of claim that he wasn't really working in that period and that his later period sprang up as inspiration, but yeah, it's not true. Um, in fact, in this this recent documentary of his life, I think came out in 2017, um, Francis Bacon, A Brush with Violence, which you can watch on YouTube. It's pointed out there's actually um, a painting of Bacon's own studio by one of his friends, one of his sort of influential artist friends, Roy de Maestra, at this time in which you can see there's all these paintings leaning against the wall that he must have subsequently destroyed. Which, of course, is totally within the artist's right to do. But I think there's a funny dialectic going on that's really integral to Bacon's work, which is this relationship between chance, which he praised really highly and thought was key to the artistic process, and then control um, through the very careful control of what he allowed to be released from his studio. And this continued right at the end of his life, you know, even even the last couple of years when a, a Bacon painting, a new Bacon painting can sell for one, two, three million pounds, he continued to destroy the majority of his work that he wasn't happy with, which I think speaks quite well for him, actually. And it is true that Chance was really integral to his life. Um, <clears throat> one of the most important professional relationships of his life was with the art critic David Sylvester, who began interviewing and reviewing Bacon's work from about the late 40s right up to his death. And Sylvester was key in giving Bacon the space to create this self-image that's so important in how the audience approached and contextualizes his work. Um, and that's really important for an artist. It can be very important for an artist because their, their lives can be a sort of paratext. It's like this piece of evidence that, that allows the public to get access to the work. It gives an idea of what the artist is supposed to do. Um, and that's always been the case. And in his interviews with Sylvester, Bacon could sort of push forward his own interpretation of his work. And Sylvester is this like sounding board. So together they sort of have this interplay where they produce this supposed like definitive version of what Bacon means and who Bacon is, which for years is sort of dominates sort of Bacon studies, as it were. Um, and the partying and the drinking and the gambling was all part of that image. Um, but the other part, of course, was this tension between the artist as this sort of in- um, intentional, critical visionary and the artist as this sort of accidental, passionate, savant genius. 
and talking with Sylvester about the difference between the early so-called analytic paintings of the Cubists, who were were quite rationally trying to sort of deconstruct this singular perspectival viewpoint of the art, of the artist as this like mode of seeing in Western art. When you contrast that with the later works of Cubism, <clears throat> Bacon says, "Quote: Perhaps in the later ones, Picasso knew what he wanted to do, but didn't know how to bring it about." I don't know about that. I know that in my case, I know that I want, I know what I want to do, but I don't know how to bring it about. And that's why I'm hoping accidents or chance or whatever you like to call it bring about for me. It's uh, a continuous thing between what may be called luck or hazard, intuition and the critical sense, because it's only kept hold of by the critical sense, the criticism of your own instincts about how far this form or accidental form crystallizes into what you want. So both Sylvester and Bacon link this approach to the canvas of this happy accident with, with Bacon's gambling habits. And in the 40s, Bacon was living in South Kensington with his former nanny, Jessie Lightfoot. And in his studio at night, he'd run an illicit casino where he'd be the, the croupier, where while um, nanny Lightfoot, who was totally blind, I have to add as well, would cook. Uh, and, and she'd provide refreshments and... Um, all this sort of thing. And she was a very eccentric figure. She actually slept on the kitchen table every night. And he was also in the 40s um, in this relationship with his first serious lover, who was this older married man called Eric Hall, whom he'd met in the early 1930s. Hall was a patron of the arts and the two lived together, despite Hall still being married with children. And Hall sort of paid for everything. <clears throat> During the war, Hall often rented a house in the countryside outside of London to which um, Bacon re- could retreat. Um, as the dust from bomb sites triggered his asthma, and he was working as a, I think, an air raid warden at the time. And then, following the war, Bacon and Hall and Jesse Lightfoot then decamped to Monaco, where they indulged their love of gambling further. So Hall's gamble on Bacon, and then ga- Bacon's gamble on his own talent, was sort of to pay off. Because in April of 1945, Bacon, who was um, still at that point kind of virtually unknown, he hadn't shown anything in a decade. He was invited into a group show with these luminaries of the British art world like Graham Sutherland and Henry Moore. Um, neither Moore nor Sutherland are conservative, were conservative artists at all, but the paintings that Bacon chose to show, which was this triptych called Three Studies for Figures at the Base of a Crucifixion, were on this different level altogether, this different level of intensity. <clears throat> they featured these three sort of weird animal-like figures against this orange field, uh, one's blindfold. Two have these terrible, toothy, screaming mouths, reminiscent, of course, of the figure in of the nurse in Battleship Potemkin, and of Poussin's slaughtered innocence. And his timing was very prescient. It was the last month of the war, and on the one hand, the British public was filled with optimism for the future. They were about to elect their first Labour government, um, initiate the welfare state. But on the other hand, the newsreels were still full of the horror of. Allied troops who had rolling across Europe, liberating the Nazi death camps, and these these visions of unimaginable um, the, the unimaginable depth of brutality of fascism were were truly shocking uh, in a way that I think anyone born after that time can't almost comprehend. And I think it's also important for people to know that the with those the existence of those death camps was a rumor almost before the end of the Second World War, <laughs> and it was something that was really not particularly discussed. I mean, it, it seems almost imaginable, unimaginable now to think about the Second World War without thinking about the the mass murder of 11 million Jews and, and queers in Roma and disabled people and communists. But 
at that time, it was, I mean, it was known that this was sort of a brutal regime, but it was not that they were front page articles in newspapers every day about the existence of death camps and gas chambers. Yeah, and as, especially for the sort of general public in allied countries. Um, yeah, like I think it was just rumors. Um, and so in this context, you know, Bacon's paintings seem to sort of both push against the optimism of the future, but they were also reflecting something of the, the brutality of the time. So yeah, he started to he started to make a sort of a name for himself. And um, by 1950, he'd returned from Monaco. He was back in London, and he'd broken up with Eric Hall, who'd sort of served his purpose, as it were. And Francis later said, quote, I decided when I was very young that I would have this extraordinary life, going everywhere and meeting everyone. Of course, I used everybody along the way. Hall would remain a benefactor, uh, and he would buy some of his paintings. And most generously, he actually bequeathed most of his paintings to the Tate Gallery on his death in 1959, um, thanks to which the, the public can still see some of Bacon's most important early works in, in a public collection. Bacon, meanwhile, had started to have uh, his first major solo shows, and yeah, his style was on the rise. Um, in 1948, he'd been a founding member of the Colney Room Club, which was a small private drinking den on Dean Street in London, Soho, uh, run by, and you're going to love her name, Ben, I know you have a thing for English names, run by this uh, very foul-mouthed woman named Muriel Belcher. Yes. Um, Muriel Belcher was, is a Soho legend. She was this like tough lesbian proprietress who would sort of prop up the bar and scream these foul-mouthed tirades at all her customers. <clears throat> Apologies to our American listeners, because this is a somewhat- Sounds great. Can we this is a somewhat worse curse after this? <laughs> yeah, this is a, a somewhat worse curse for for Americans than, than English people, but still pretty strong. But she she'd call all her enemies cunt, and all her friends cunty, or sometimes Mary. And yeah, just this sort of amazing amazing figure. Um, and despite this sort of abrasive tongue that she had, she was actually very skillful at creating a very hospitable atmosphere for, for drinking and storytelling and witticisms. And um, yeah, the, the club, the colony room became something of a Soho legend for its um, debauched bacchanalias. Uh, it closed, I think, in 2008. So I, I know people who used to drink there, in fact. And the fact that she was a lesbian meant that for many gay men, they felt relaxed at, at murals. And it became a haunt for a sort of entire cultural set uh, including the the wonderful jazz singer George Melly, who I'm a big fan of, um, the photographer John Deakin, who Bacon would come to rely on for a sort of commission for his source materials, uh, the painter and his friend Lucian Freud, and one of Bacon's muses, Henrietta Moraes. So Bacon would sort of live this life where he'd drink at murals, um, and then, uh, yeah, he'd sort of um, either arrive from a lunch or maybe go go then to this big boozy lunch uh, and, and then he'd come back and drink it closed. And he lived this life for about 40 more years. Um, and Muriel paid Francis £10 a week plus free drinks to bring in customers with money. And the colony was sort of the sun in this solar system of Soho institutions, uh, notably the French, which you can still go to, more properly the French house, which is this sort of French-style pub at the bottom end of Dean Street, and the uh, Coach and Horses on Romilly Street, um, which you can also still go to, although it's under different ownership now, which was run then by um, a guy named Norman Ballon, who was known as London's rudest landlord. So yeah, this would become sort of Bacon's life for the next four four decades. He sort of thrived on this role as a bohemian. He he was the sort of first-rate bohemian who second-rate bohemians tried to emulate badly. And um, and once he began earning serious money, he would he would usually fuck the bill at places. He sort of preferred to dine with more people than fewer. 
and his generosity was was um was legendary it was this sort of foil to his campy queeny cruelty that he could sort of dish out according to the filmmaker john mabry whose movie love is the devil kind of does the best job of catching this soho milieu he he hated the idea he might look like a bohemian so he he dressed in these very these sort of freshly pressed very expensive suits but underneath he'd often be wearing lingerie or fishnet stockings and he'd sort of love to appall anyone who'd sort of inadvertently wandered into his drinking dens unawares by sort of telling them this and sometimes he'd go out in this huge shiny black leather trench coat and according to John Mabry, uh, he would also wear extremely expensive wristwatches because he knew that sort of to rough trade and to rent boys, it was a signal of his wealth that they wouldn't fail to miss. Hmm. Was it a signal of his wealth that they wouldn't fail to steal or what? You know, like, <laughs> I mean, yes, but he didn't care, which becomes right, this, this fascinating and attractive thing about him is that he's, he's this very wealthy man who, who kind of is very easy with it. But yeah, so as well as being a sort of model of Bohemian Soho, he was also a strange model of a sort of um, pre-decriminalization gay culture in London. Um, like he sort of belonged to the same sexual world and social world as Quentin Crisp, um, although they they navigated it quite differently. I think um, Daniel Farson's line here about the effeminacy of leather is useful in describing it. You know, like um, Bacon would sort of wear makeup and lingerie and dye his hair, but he would also operate within these codes of clandestinity and, and secrecy of the time where it's the 50s um police prosecutions of queer men were was rising the general public was gripped with a, a new moral panic about homosexuals it was one of the most dangerous times to be gay in 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 london in the 1950s yeah after decriminalization in 67 uh, bacon would actually lament that gay life was quote really so much more interesting when it was illegal it's true. I am starting a new organization advocating for the recriminalization of sodomy. It's really, it's been too long. <laughs> um, yeah, his biographer, Michael Pepiat, points out that actually, um, like Bacon wasn't really slumming it for effects. Like these were the worlds that he preferred, you know, being surrounded by by gamblers and drinkers and prostitutes and queers. That was his world. And um, as in his work, he sort of craved and thrived on this sort of dissolution as a more real experience, whether in Soho or in Pagal or wherever, you know. He had a taste for the extreme and no more so than in his sex life. Uh, perhaps the clearest example of this was in his relationship with a man called Peter Lacey. Uh, Francis was in his 40s when he met Peter Lacey at the Colony Rooms in 1952. And Peter Lacey generally preferred younger men, but the two began this relationship which in all senses, uh, Lacey was the dominant partner in. And that must have been quite a feat given the sheer strength of Bacon's charisma, uh, combined with the fact that he was at last coming into his own career-wise um, and that Lacey was the younger man. Yet Lacey was also very charismatic. He was a skilled piano player. He was very attractive, uh, at least to Francis. And he claimed to have been a fighter pilot during the Battle of Britain and that his nerves had been shot as, as a result of this role in the war, although there's some dispute about that. Uh, but he was also a, a monster of, of a sort. He was this sort of lethal combination of being neurotic and sadistic. And as Francis would later say, quote, of course, it was the most total disaster from the start. Being in love in that extreme way, being totally physically obsessed by someone is like having some dreadful disease. I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy. He once demanded that Bacon abandon his painting to come and live with him as a sort of um, a dehumanized sex object that he would be sort of chained to the wall and he'd sleep on straw and, and shit 
where he slept, um, <clears throat> which Bacon uh, luckily turned down the offer. Uh, and he would sort of watch as other men fucked Bacon, and then he would fuck him as well. He sort of enjoyed degrading and abusing Bacon. And um, and Bacon would also be at the receiving end of these unprovoked, unpredictable, violent outbursts outside of the bedroom. Despite the success of his career, uh, it was around this time in the mid-50s that he started producing this series of paintings that are often called the Screaming Popes, are very famous. Um, the relationship really hammered Bacon's sense of self, his... his sense of his own identity and his ability to work. And yet luckily fate sort of fate had offered him this break when Lacey decided to move away from London in 1954 to live in Tangiers in Morocco, which is that place was a, as a common place for Europeans to visit. Uh, many of the Europeans who did visit, including Lacey and um, later the sort of cultural queer figures like Joe Orton, Tennessee Williams, um, Alan Ginsberg, William Burroughs, Truman Capote, they were they were looking for sex. Uh, Tangiers at that sort of time was in this international zone, um, controlled by different European powers, and it had a reputation for for tolerance not found in Europe, and also, unfortunately, for um, underage prostitution. And this was this was sort of Bacon's chance to be free of Lacey. Uh, Lacey was sort of propping up the bar as hangout called Dean's in Tangiers every night. He'd run out of cash, and so he was playing the piano every night to pay off his bar tab. But the bar tab never decreased because as he was playing the piano, he was drinking more and more. But Bacon, being Bacon, of course, didn't take this chance to be free of Lacey. He followed him, finding Lacey in, in the most sort of disagreeable, violent state that he'd ever been in. Um, normally, Bacon was a sort of classic sexual submissive, with this subservient sexual role being itself actually an act of control. But, but with his largely unrequited love for Lacey, that's that was inverted. And in these drunken rages, he would he would um, Lacey would destroy months worth of Bacon's work, hundreds of canvases, and slash them, you know, with a knife. And then he would beat Francis to a pulp. Uh, the the expatriate community in Tangiers at the time was actually quite small, and so Francis's wounds soon drew attention. The British consul general wrote to the French chief of police. After after cops had sort of found Bacon beaten senseless and wandering around a back alley at night, uh, and the, the yeah the consul general wrote to him saying you know you have to increase patrols you have to make the streets safer, uh, and yet Bacon was again found in this sort of bruised and dishevelled condition, and the police uh, the police chief visited the consul general to explain the situation saying pendant Monsieur le consul général mais il n'y a rien à faire Monsieur Bacon aime ça excuse my Poor pronunciation, but translates as, sorry, Mr. Consul General, but there is nothing to be done. Mr. Bacon likes it. But their, their relationship sort of broke down over the next couple of years, um, imperceptibly and never totally, never finally. And both of them sort of blamed their relationships of others, particularly with these young men in Tangiers. Lacey's drinking worsened, and by the end, he was sort of drinking three bottles of whiskey every night. On 24th of May 1962, Bacon's solo show opened at Tate in London, and among the con- congratulatory telegrams that he received, he found one that was informing him that Lacey had died the previous day in Tangiers. Uh, not only was this quite difficult for him, it was this sort of dark foreshadowing of, um, of this second relationship, the second most important relationship in his life, uh, which was one which, in all honesty, it was Francis who was the, the brutal bastard. Is this so, where we start getting into how Francis was a bad guy? 
Yeah. Beyond the kind of beyond the kind of public bad, you know, the the one of these sort of uh, impish personalities who maybe which maybe we have more sympathy for than the public did at the time, but this is where we maybe begin to approach. Yeah, something like that, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so this was nineteen sixty-three. And despite Peter Lacey's death, Francis was um was in quite a good position. Um, he'd rather unceremoniously and disloyally dropped his his old gallerist, Erica Browson, at the Hanover Gallery in 1958, after her competitor, Marlborough Fine Art, had offered to pay off all his considerable gambling debts in exchange for him defecting. And at the Marlborough, he was looked after by his very talented gallerist, Valerie Beston, who he referred to as Valerie from the Gallery, who would uh, take care of his business for the rest of his life including, importantly, taking his paintings out of his studio as soon as they were finished to ensure that he couldn't drunkenly destroy them. His his work was, was very idiosyncratic, and he was sort of putting some distance between his own very powerful figurative distortions and the reigning and, in my opinion, quite tired abstract expressionism, which since the war had dominated both American and European art in various forms. This was a, a, an important moment in contemporary art as the the high modernism of the abstract expressionists, as theorized by Clement Greenberg, had sort of hit this wall. Um, it was something that could only really be departed of in a radical new direction. That was the only thing that would make sense. Bacon hated expressionism. And actually, once at dinner, he referred to uh, the painter Jackson Pollock as an old lace maker. <laughs> a good line. In the US, you saw this in the sort of scene around artists like Robert Rauschenberg and Jasper Johns, uh, Agnes Martin, Merce Cunningham, and John Cage, which is this very sort of queer New York scene at the time. Uh, in Germany, you see it in this younger generation of artists, uh, particularly those trained in the DDR, like um, Gerhard Richter and George Baselitz. But in Britain, however, Bacon was kind of in a school of his own. He, his work wasn't like that of his friends and his peers, like Lucian Freud or Frank Auerbach. Um, it's worth pointing out that as well that Bacon, like Freud and Auerbach, was uh, was an immigrant, but he he regarded himself as English. Um, but England has never really produced that many great painters, and those that it have had have tended to be quite idiosyncratic. But the the country was sort of going through a cultural renaissance in the so called New Elizabethan era at the time, and working class culture was really starting to to make a a, a splash or to, to have a, a space in contemporary culture on a, on a major sort of mainstream scale, let's say, for the first time. And you begin to see a lot more mixing between these working class and upper class cultures. Listeners might remember actually similar accounts when we're talking about the Cray twins, it's about the same time. So in 1963, working class culture was becoming sort of mainstream um, and Britain was sort of entering the swinging 60s with this international cachet. And it also was experiencing what at the time the Observer called the Bacon Boom, uh, which included a, a huge retrospective at the Guggenheim in New York. Although actually his recent London shows had received quite mixed responses. Even with his lifelong taste for rough trade, this coming together for the classes sort of made it an auspicious time for Francis to meet this young, handsome, well-built, petty criminal from the East End called George Dyer. There's, a, there's an urban myth that they actually met while Dyer was burgling Bacon's studio. Uh, and in the film Love is a Devil, Bacon interrupts him as he's breaking through the skylight, saying, well, you're not much of a burglar, are you? Come to bed and you can have whatever you want. <coughs> which, was, which was the story at the time. But in reality, actually, Dyer, Dyer sort of approached Bacon in this Soho pub. 
but the attraction was very, very strong for Bacon. And they began this affair, and Bacon began to paint Dyer almost obsessively alongside these other muses, uh, the painter Isabel Rawsthorne and Henrietta Moraes from, from the colony. Um, on first appearances, Dyer was sort of exactly what Francis was looking for. He was this rough, tough, working-class criminal type. And in public, he loved the effect that having Dyer around would have on his cronies and his hangers-on, because he would sort of loudly proclaim how he didn't understand or like Francis's paintings and would otherwise play the Philistine. And in private, obviously, Bacon loved his his strength, his his body, his impeccable attention to his appearance. And most of all, he loved the violence. He he would goad Dyer into rages. Yet, uh, yeah, unlike Lacey, Dyer was was at heart. He was quite a sweet and insecure man. Um, and he, he loved spending time with Francis, but he'd abandoned his criminal career to be with him. And so he found himself kind of listless without his own identity anymore. He was just sort of waiting for Francis to stop painting every day so they could go drinking. Um, and he, he attempted to sort of match Francis's generosity. He was always buying rounds for the whole bar or inviting people to lunch and stuff like this, but he didn't have the cash. So he became increasingly dependent on him. And so this sort of combination of emotional neediness and this lack of independence was obviously a massive turnoff to this big old Nelly sub like, like Francis Bacon. He said, quote, I think it would be absolutely marvellous to succumb utterly to someone. I've always longed to meet a man who was tougher and more intelligent than myself. But unfortunately, when you get to know them, most men turn out to be terribly weak. And so the weaker and more insecure that Dyer became, the, the crueler Bacon's response. He, he used to refer to him as Sir George. He, he mocked him in front of his friends quite openly. Um, and Dyer became more desperate for his attention. He, he endured a number of suicide attempts. Uh, on one occasion, he planted cannabis in Bacon's studio and then grasped him up to the police, and he was actually charged and taken to court. He was acquitted. Uh, and he began to drink a lot more, more and more and more, as Bacon became increasingly tired of him. So Dyer would sort of cling on harder because he'd given up so much of identity to Bacon. Uh, he was so pleased to have been chosen by him. But Bacon's appetite for violent sex and violent more generally never sort of let up and his friends reported how he would often turn up with missing teeth um his doctor marveled at how quickly his skin healed from all the cuts and of course he continued to be able to and drink almost anyone that he met uh helped of course by his love of good food he was famous for always never eating on, and never drinking on an empty stomach which is a very very good advice um dire meaning uh, meanwhile he sort of became increasingly tragic and isolated and like with Lacey, they never never had this decisive split. Um, but but in his presence, um, Francis would continue to taunt him or provoke his jealousy with his other lovers. According to Lucy and Freud, it was it was sad but simple. Quote: It was awfully tragic, really. Francis stopped fancying him, and George was in love with him. Francis got him these marvelous, horrible grand flats, but George wanted to be with him. So in 1971. Uh, Bacon received one of the biggest honours of his life to date, which was this enormous retrospective of the Grand Palais in Paris. Um, he loved he loved France. And so he um, he took George with him. It was going to be his big occasion. The exhibition was going to be opened by the French president, Georges Pompidou, followed by a, a party hosted by his wife, Cla- Claude Pompidou, who were both very keen collectors of contemporary art. And it was it was, yeah, the, one of the high points of the life of Bacon. You know, he was this avowed Francophile, and it was the first time that an English artist ever received the honour of a show at the Grand Palais. 
So George and Francis shared a room at the Hotel de Saint-Père. Um, two days before the opening, Bacon had returned from this very stressful day at a gallery. Um, he'd been sort of warring over these paintings that hadn't arrived, and then this trip, this visit from the president, which was which was unexpected that he was going to come. So he got back to his hotel room and found George drunk with this rent boy. And the, the smell of sex sort of filled the room and Bacon commented on how disgustingly dirty the rent boy was. And he was furious that George, uh, who all his friends had advised shouldn't have been invited on the trip, he was now going to sort of act up for the whole, whole trip. So they had this big argument and then Francis went out for the night of his friends and he was sort of drinking and gambling, came home 2am and stayed in a, a friend's room. And then the next morning when his gallerist, Valerie, and her assistant went to the room, they found George bent double over the toilet, uh, dead. He'd uh, died of an overdose of barbiturates, and it was this horrible replaying of the death of his lover, Peter Lacey, almost a decade before, coming as it did on the eve of the opening through his big show. But what happened next was extraordinary. So knowing the scale of this event that was going to happen the next day and the importance that the British Embassy and the Champs-Élysées had placed on it, Francis and Valerie Beston, Valerie from the gallery, conspired with the hotel manager to cover up the death. The hotel manager very discreetly went up to Francis's room and sealed the bathroom and forbid his staff to enter. And then the event went ahead, all the while with Francis and Valerie knowing that across the Seine in his hotel room, George's corpse was growing cold. You can only sort of imagine what's going through Bacon's head, especially as he was walking with Pompidou around the show. And what's more, the French state had recently bought a Bacon triptych just a few years before called Three Figures in a Room. And so Pompidou stopped in front of it to take this long look at his new ac- acquisition. He's, he stood there for a few minutes staring very intently at this painting, this, this triptych, and especially at the left panel, which depicted George Dyer, naked, bent double over a toilet. It was a pretty cold decision by the two, two, two people, to be honest. But Bacon certainly did feel very guilty about Dyer's death afterwards. I can't find much evidence that Bacon really experienced much in the way of self-pity throughout his life, but guilt and compulsion were clearly two competing factors in his life. And so he returned to the hotel uh, in which George had died over and over again for the next few years, and he began to work on this this new uh, triptych, or these three triptychs, the so-called black triptychs, which depict Dyer um, over and over in his last moments of his life, vomiting into a sink and hunched over the toilet. But he he retained his almost existentialist perspective on the world. We're merely flesh. We're born, we live, we die. <clears throat> he accepted that he'd, uh, he sort of attracted violent people, drunk people, um, and that that death, though, though grisly, is sort of part of that territory. And he'd seen, obviously, many of his friends die. So he returned to his work, although per- personally speaking, I, I think that after the Black Triptychs, his his work, he sort of failed to attain that same tension between this vibrant living flesh and these dark meditations on death and violence that his early work had. But there are some, some good paintings from the 70s and the 80s, uh, notably um, studies for self-portraits, and especially at portraits of his friend, John Edwards. Edwards entered Bacon's life in the mid-1970s. What happened is Bacon had been planning a big party at a pub in the East End that that John worked at. For, he worked there for his brother. And he was a sort of rough East End guy as well, like a illiterate, tough, 
but also quite warm and loving and considerate. And so Muriel Belcher advised John Edwards, who was drinking at the Colony Club, that he should get in some crates of champagne because Francis will pay for it all, his friends, whatever. And so John did, but then Francis and his party never showed up. And so later, when he saw Francis at the Colony Club, he sort of pulled him up on the trouble that he'd been put to. And Francis was very charmed by this sort of very forthright, forthright nature when, you know, at this time he was surrounded by hangers-on. Uh, Francis was 40 years older than John, yet for the rest of his life, they, they became very close companions. And um, they both insisted that the relationship was paternal and not sexual, which may well have been the case. Um, and, you know, they'd holiday together and dine together every day. Uh, John sort of thrived through this caring role um, and also mixed with really not tolerating any of Francis's bullshit, which someone needs to do. And uh, this allowed Francis to continue working and succeeding for the rest of his life. And in return, Francis bequeathed John his legacy of some £11 million and his Reese Muse studio in, in South Kensington. But uh, Francis wasn't over one last terrible infatuation, of course. And perhaps he was sort of playing to this type in his head. In one interview in French, he would say, it's harder for a homosexual man to grow old because homosexuality depends on beauty. Surprisingly, however, it's, it's one in which Bacon was the, the fool, the, the mark, as it were. Uh, according to tapes recorded by Bacon and released by his former neighbour, Barry Jewell, Bacon's last affair was with this handsome young Spanish banker named José Capello. He was 40 years his junior, and Jewell had in, introduced him at a dinner party although Capello continues to deny that the relationship was ever sexual. But Bacon painted José, and then after a period of a couple of years, José broke up with Francis. And on the tapes, Bacon sort of questions his relationship with them. He says, um, one has to think it's so abnormal of somebody of 35, like José, having an affair with me. Do you see? I'm 40 years older than him. And he'd given uh, he'd given Capello some of his paintings and also four million dollars, and he said, "I often think how stupid, what a fool I was to have done it." And then I suddenly think, "Oh well, there it is. It is done." It's this really radical kind of. It's a relationship to generosity that's less about generosity than 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 I don't know self self. Um, self-denial or self-explosion or self-destruction. It's like the uh, the desire to kind of give until there's no more of the self left, like giving to obliterate the self. Yeah. Like generosity, or... <clears throat> generosity, uh, generosity is an extension of this kind of unbelievably kind of almost self-obliteratingly submissive bottom position in a way. Maybe, yeah. But may I mean, yeah, because he, he had that attitude even when he didn't have money. But I do think also having just oodles and oodles of money and not really, you know, he didn't have a big house. He, he lived in the same sort of muse flat of his, until the day he died, his, his bath was in his kitchen, you know, like it was very small. He lived a very, in one way, humble life, but he, you know, he didn't splash out in those ways, but he liked to go on holiday and he liked to take friends and he liked to drink and stuff. I don't know. Maybe it's just a sort of existential thing. Like you can't take it with you when you go, you know, doesn't really matter money, you know, experience is what matters for, I think for Francis Bacon. Yeah, he uh, yeah. With this relationship with Jose Capello, he sort of he craved him. He he was obsessed, like he was young again, I guess. Um, and even knowing that he was quite ill, he he travelled to Madrid to see, try and see Jose again, and maybe persuade him or have a relationship or whatever. And his friends warned him. He said, "If you if you go, you won't return." But but he went. And when he was in Madrid, he he collapsed. He had a heart attack, and he died in uh, April of nineteen ninety two. 
Uh, he was 82 and he was all alone there except for the, the nuns who were caring for him. So I guess, I guess it's a death that was born of this, this final obsession for this sort of intensity of relationships. And so perhaps it's a fitting death. And as he noted, actually, in his, his final interview before he died, he said, you are born, you fuck, you die. What could be more violent than that? Yet his legacy um, lives on, you know, obviously well past him in terms of friendship and money and art. That was sort of fixed when he died. And a good sign of this is that in, in 2013, his triptych of his old friend Lucian Freud sold at auction uh, at Christie's, I think, for $142.4 million. At the time, it was the highest price ever paid for a work of art at auction. Thanks so much to all our listeners, especially those who have shared and reviewed the show over the years. It really helps. And a special thank you to all our Patreon subscribers who really help keep the show on the road and allow us to keep making Bad Gaze. If you want to help support the show, head on over to badgazepod.com. And in return, there's a whole bunch of great rewards, including books and T-shirts. Speaking of books, uh, our book, Bad Gaze, A Homosexual History, is now available for pre-order from Verso Books and will be published in June of 2022. The book profiles 14 insidious inverts all the way from the Emperor Hadrian to the Dutch far-right politician Pim Fortown and uh, basically presents a long extended argument for why homosexuality didn't work and what we might want to try to do instead. Um, Now, every episode we're going to uh, talk about a different little sort of did-you-know fact from the book. And so today's is... Did you know uh, that the first openly gay politician was a Nazi? Doesn't surprise me. I mean, we did cover him on the first episode of the show, but Ernst Rehm, a uh, member of the Nazi party, uh, is part of a whole chapter we have in the book on the uh, bad gays of Weimar Berlin. For the full story, pre-order Bad Gays, A Homosexual History from Verso Books, available now at badgayspod.com slash book. So I think one interesting place to start um, with Bacon is to think about the ethical questions that come up as we think about these different relationships that he had with people throughout his life, Um, both his friends and his eventual, um, the people who were sort of his romantic partners. Um, I already asked a question about whether the generosity that he is exhibiting uh, can be understood as a form of self-obliteration or self-denial. And and I guess I want to ask now about how you would suggest that we think through the ethical questions that come up when we think about Bacon's relationships with these kind of rough guys and what I be, because it's so complicated, right? You have someone who is, you have someone who is um, pursuing these relationships with people who have a really different kind of habitus than he has or had, and then in some cases, kind of seeking out his own self-destruction through them. And then in some cases, like with Dyer, by seeking out his own self-destruction through them, he actually brings on in some way or contributes to in some way their own self-destruction. So how do you, as someone who's just spent a lot of time sort of reading about and thinking about Bacon, start processing that in your own head? I think the first way would be to look at how he looks at it, which I think that he was someone who quite, 
I don't know if admirable is the word, but quite impressively manages to sustain an intensity in his life, a, philosoph- a philosophical intensity around this sort of idea of experience of one life, live it as big as you can, you know, all cylinders all the time, you sleep when you die sort of attitude. And that search for experiences was in some ways, I think made him a remarkably open person it destroyed a lot of the sort of constructs of class and um, yeah, like sociality that existed in, in England at the time. But at the same time, it also um, we can see that it's also sort of valorized a sort of certain ideas, especially around class that his, his search for these rough working class men who then would disappoint him because they, they weren't just like brutal automatons of violence, these figures of violence uh, is yeah is is obviously like a reinscri- reinscribing that sort of idea of class, and then I think for me, for me, it's a the biggest discrepancy in his life in terms of his behaviour is around um, George Dyer, and that he has this position where he's suddenly becoming extremely powerful in a lot of ways, socially powerful, rich, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and then he but yet he he engages in this relationship with this guy kind of on the same footing that he did with his previous partners who were generally more powerful than him and certainly sexually in control and that sort of violence and that he didn't doesn't seem that much to have personally to me it seems that he was quite cruel in that his relationship and didn't take that into account i mean maybe he did take it into account you know maybe life was crazy he's obviously got his own sort of issues are going on there and stuff but 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 for me it seems that seems to me the most troubling aspect of his life story but then tellingly afterwards he he never seems to engage in a relationship on those terms again that that he sort of recognized his role in the destruction of dyer after it was too late right and also i think you can see that in the in the work that he creates about dyer's death right that's part of that's as you described these black triptychs those are the those are kind of art about it adds a layer of of obliteration in a way because it's also the it's there's a recognition um in the yeah. it, it, and do you think that the the not pursuing that kind of a relationship again after the death of Dyer is do you uh draw some line between that and his inability in your uh appraisal to reach the same artistic heights again after that no, I mean, I think Dyer clearly had a huge effect on him artistically as well as emotionally. Obviously, the two things are entirely interlinked in his life. His art is born of those deep emotions. And he works them out on, he works a lot of his emotions out on canvas. But I do think, <clears throat> I do think that his, his, his triptychs of Dyer are clearly the violence in them is the most melancholic compared to what came before, um, is, and is less, Valorized the earlier paintings to a degree do valorize violence. That's some of their power, I guess, is that they they take it seriously, they admire it in a certain way. Whereas these paintings of of Dyer seem to me far more melancholic, and they're a meditation on the destructive power of it and the sensitivity of Dyer and stuff like that. Um, and then what comes afterwards becomes a, a smoothing out of his art. Like I don't think he ever reaches. He, he produces some interesting paintings, but he he never they never reach that intensity. He's they, at times he becomes a bit mannered. There's some quite bad paintings in the 80s, in my opinion. But he's he he sort of 
even when it's good, it's it's smoothed out into a different world. It's never decoration that he hated. It's never aesthetics that he hated. But it becomes, in my mind, more a focus on form and color that he that that and the 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 punch of the earlier work about violence, the earlier fifty years of work about violence sort of lacks uh, has sorry. So you mentioned that uh, during his lifetime, you're talking about uh, during his lifetime, his uh, he didn't really have a school, at least not in the United Kingdom. Um, but there were painters that you could think about his work in relationship to, but they tended to be mostly not in the UK. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about Bacon's uh, artistic influence after his death and what his kind of artistic legacy has been? Yeah, well, he dies at this very interesting point in British art, which is just after the start of the, the, the growth of the YBAs, the young British artists in the 90s, when when art in London was completely transformed. London had never really been an artistic centre. It had been Paris before the war and then New York after the war. But in the sort of late 80s, early 90s, there's this boom of British art um, starting f- – it's, it's traditionally dated. It has a longer legacy, but it's traditionally dated to this show by – a group of Goldsmiths students. Um, the, sh- the show is called Freeze. And suddenly London, see, it's the 80s, there's a lot of, uh, the, there's been this sort of economic, well, no, there's been a, a boom from financialization within the city. Uh, there's been a change in its relationship with class. Um, and suddenly there's a huge amount of art, money swirling into the art market. And he dies just at that moment. And at that moment, he sort of becomes this transitional figure for a lot of those young artists about what it means to be an artist. So Damien Hirst makes a lot about his relationship with uh, with Bacon, and <clears throat> at that time, he's producing these um, shows. He has a he's showing at a number of sort of big shows at the Saatchi Gallery, which is starting at that point, and he 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 shows these sort of big vitrines uh, with these flies with these these bits of animals with flies in you know and the zapper you know and he makes a big thing about the fact that francis bacon actually once saw one of these and commented favorably just before he died on this on this work but yeah he, what's what's kind of his influence more is on, on that generation is not necessarily visually although there is a big part of that in in especially in uh damien Hirst's work but in this idea that 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 emerges of what how an artist should be what it should should be like and so i mentioned earlier a bit about this sort of second-rate bohemian in that sort of circle that that becomes this sort of focus again on drinking and partying and this outrageous behavior being a key part of being an artist and uh, especially people like damien hurst and people are on the groucho club um that they go into sort of like yeah reckless boozy and they become sort of celebrities again in the way that he kind of was but i think there's a big difference in their approach and i think Theirs is a very mannered or studied postmodern a- a- approach to that. I think Damien Hirst knew at the time that he could claim some sort of legacy from him. He's gone on to buy quite a lot of the early paintings, including that 1933 crucifixion scene, the first major piece of Bacon's work. And it lacks some of the, for me, it lacks, it's, it's, it's a lot more of a performance. I don't know. And, and, and its relationship with money is, of course, entirely different. You know, the, the, the thing that people realize that by, by playing this role within the art world of the, the bohemian, the drunkard, the party animal, the one who's crazy and violent, et cetera, et cetera, you can, you can attract money from rich people who desperately desire some of that joie de vivre, which, right. <clears throat> which Bacon clearly, clearly 
one thing you can say about Bacon is he fucking meant every single bit of it. Right. Even when he and, was sort of lying and making stuff up, you know, it's all, it's very, there's an intensity and a seriousness and a, a meaningfulness behind it. And it means when he's talking, when, when, when Bacon talks about life and death, he's thinking about life and death all the time in that way. When Hearst talks about life and death, it's because he knows life and death is a big subject. And if you talk about it in that way, your art some of, somehow attracts meaning, but actually like, of course, it can't be questioned. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, I'm doing something meaningful. It's very, very different. Oh, it can't be quite. I'll question it right now. I'll say that Damien Hurst is a completely useless hack who's never made anything of lasting value in his entire career as a testament to the bad taste of billionaires. And um, I disagree. You know, also, and, 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 and also, I'll say that uh, if we're talking about people's generosity, we'll recall that Damien Hurst, who has himself entered this class of people that he spent his whole life milking, um, got a 50 million pound bailout from the UK government during COVID when shows were cancelled and still laid off dozens of people from his studio, making them uh, jobless in a fucking global pandemic. And I am certain that Damien Hirst does not have a bathroom in his kitchen. And I am certain he does not live in the same apartment he lived in before this whole thing began. Uh, Absolutely not. But I will say that Damien Hirst and fuck the young British artists and all of them should be consigned to the dustbin of history. And uh, as Dorothy Parker said, uh, to paraphrase Dorothy Parker, this is not art that can be tossed aside lightly. It should be thrown violently and with great force. (laughs) I I disagree. I think they, 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 First of all, Damien Hirst has a very did have at a time a very very keen artistic, aesthetic, creative, cultural eye to saying like, how do I combine Thatcherism and advertising with what people think they want from art? Like what he did, like in my mind, is entirely cynical, but but he did it extremely well, which is in itself a form of art. I might not like it. I might not want that from the art that I look at, but I can see that he, he's, he was very good at what he did and doing it. And secondly, there is another claim, which that Damien Hirst, much like Jeff Koons before him and Andy Warhol before him, um, was uh, made money the focus of his artwork. His artwork is is playing markets around art. And at doing that, he's very, he's very, very good. Personally, I wouldn't give me any satisfaction to do, but he, it's, it's, a, it's a thing that he can do. And secondly, that within the YBAs, there were a lot of people who either were a lot more sincere than him, even if I don't like them, or uh, were a lot were actually quite good artists, but they're quite minor. They've never kind of made it in the same way. But I don't, I don't think you can write off YBAs quite like that. Although I'd say that like none of them obviously approach the power of Francis Bacon's work. All right, well, then I'll stop being cranky and instead ask you the inevitable closing question. Uh, Francis Bacon, bad gay, not bad gay, bad not gay, not bad not gay? Oh, he said himself, completely homosexual. I mean, as homosexual as it comes, I know you can get a gay, a gay than Francis Bacon. <laughs> I'm all for it. And no, I don't think bad. I think complicated. Like, like someone who dealt with violence that he suffered in an extremely interesting way, productive way for him, complicated way that he... He then, of course, as all people who are who are, or as many people who are subject and victims of abuse, they can they can recreate and reproduce aspects of their of that way of behaving on other people. We're we're all the same uh, in that way, I think. Um, so I'd say extremely gay, very good in lots of ways, with some very complicated interpersonal aspects to his life. But well, you should report, you should report a dead body as soon as you find it. <laughs> Yes, you should. 
Um, well, I would agree with you there. And uh, I would uh, ask you to let us know about some of the sources that you used to research this episode and places where people could go if they wanted to find out more about Francis Bacon. Yeah, well, the, the, the best biography to read, and it is really excellent, and I, I read it before doing this, is um, Anatomy of, Francis Bacon, Anatomy of an Enigma by Meg, Michael Pepiat. 100% recommend. If you're looking for something a little more fun, uh, there's an earlier biography that came out just after he died, which is a lot, a little bit more catty, a lot more like rumor and stuff, but it's very entertaining. The Gilded Gutter Life of Francis Bacon by Daniel Farson. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the, the, the film I mentioned, which was Francis Bacon, A Brush of Violence, which was a BBC Four film, I think, and is on YouTube. Um, but I'd also recommend other stuff. Like, for example, you just can't do better than like watching him. He was a, he was someone who knew how to use the media and TV and stuff. So there's loads of great interviews with him throughout his life. Watch ones with um, with David Sylvester. Um, the book by David Sylvester of interviews of him is very useful if you're interested in his art. There's a great South Bank show about him. So you just just Google him on YouTube. And lastly, <clears throat> a special special recommendation because it is one of my favorite films of all time uh, love is the devil study for a portrait of francis bacon by john mabry and that features derek jacoby as this wonderful super camp bacon with his big all his prosthetics this big round face that he had this, this amazing face daniel craig is an extremely sexy george dyer uh tilda swinton as muriel belcher great film you'll you'll enjoy it very sexy Amazing. Well, thank you so much for that. We'll link to all of those in the show notes. If you would like to uh, find out more about our show and our book, you can visit badgazepod.com slash book. You can follow the show on Twitter at badgazepod, me on Twitter at BenWritesThings. Me on Twitter at Hugh Lemmy. And until next week, uh, happy holidays and see you soon. Bye. 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 Bad, 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 bad,